Let's pray, and then we'll open up the Word. Heavenly Father, uh, we are at a point in the book of Colossians where the, the brightness and the glory of Jesus Christ shines at an incredible degree. And the greatest challenge for us today, for me today and for all of my friends here today, is for us to see that glory with eyes that are not dim and for us to embrace it as our treasure. And so my prayer today, Father, is that despite me, despite anything in this room that might distract us from from embracing you for who you are, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to cling to the great realities that are in this book and in the book of Colossians and in the Christ hymn in Colossians, remove every obstacle, remove every barrier for us in seeing you and treasuring you for who you are. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 for the past few weeks, and we're in a section of scripture that's called the Christ hymn. And uh, we'll be in this section of scripture one more week after today. Uh, and I'm really excited about these two weeks, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. And my prayer, my, my hope really is for all of us, is that you guys have been, as I have at least, been enjoying our deep dive into Paul's Christology, into what he thinks about Jesus Christ. And one thing we've done each week, and I'd like to do it this week as well, is when we approach the Christ hymn, instead of me getting up and just reading the text, um, we've read it together on the screen. And so I would love to do that this week and next week. So let's go ahead and, and do this. I'll start, and then you guys can join. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thank you. Um, in some ways, we're about three weeks deep now, four weeks deep in this text. We have reached now the apex and the culmination of the Christ hymn. And we are looking at, as we look at the, passage, the specific aspect of this passage uh, today, we are looking at the deepest truths and the highest parts of this passage. There are two more truths here that I want to spend time with. And if I'm honest with you, it has been extremely challenging trying to figure out how we would tackle these um, because they are so interwoven. Let me explain. In verse 18, Paul says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then he says this amazing statement, that in everything he, that is Christ Jesus, might be preeminent. That is a huge, massive statement. But what does it mean? And here's the problem. 
it actually means two distinct things. And so figuring out how to grapple with these things has been a little bit of a challenge. On one hand, it means that Christ's preeminence is that he is the reason and the purpose for everything that exists. He is the focal point of all design in the universe. But on the other hand, Christ's preeminence also means that Jesus Christ is the apex of all existence, that he is the highest and greatest of all reality in value, in worth, in every conceivable category you can think of. Christ is the peak of all those things. So you can see they're very similar concepts, but they're also different enough to explore separately. So what I've decided to do is we're going to handle each of them. There'll be some overlap the next few week, the, this week and next, um, but uh, bear with me. So without further ado, let's dive into the first one. Christ is the purpose of all things. What does this mean? This means that Jesus Christ is the focus of human history, and he is the culmination of every single thing that exists. Another way to say this is that when you ask the question, why, about anything, about anything you can conceive of, eventually and ultimately, the answer to that question is for Christ, for the glory of Christ. Remember Colossians 1.16 a few weeks ago, Paul lists out a series of extremely powerful supernatural beings, rulers, authorities, dominions. We read it just a second ago. And then he says they exist through him and for him. So just consider that for a moment. He is putting those beings up here because he's trying to press the limits of our understanding, trying to push the boundaries of what we consider is within the boundaries of Christ's um, preeminence. And he says these beings are. There's nothing beyond him. He is the last and final answer to the question, why? And thankfully, after stating this preeminence in Colossians 1.18, Paul gives us a for statement. He gives us a grounds statement for his argument. He's going to tell us how Christ became preeminent. How did that happen? Let's read it. It's uh, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us here that in Christ, God's fullness, the living God's fullness, dwells. And the, in the indwelling of Christ, God is doing something. He is reconciling himself to all things. And Paul qualifies all things by saying everything that exists in heaven and in earth, which is huge and absolutely comprehensive. He's using what is referred to as a Hebrew merism. He's pushing the extremes on both ends, and he's saying everything in the spectrum is his. And so God, according to this text, has reconciled all creation to himself, and he did this through Jesus. And the huge question we have today to answer, the question that sits at the root in the heart of how is Jesus Christ the purpose of all things is the question, what does Paul mean when he says that God 
through Christ Jesus, has reconciled all things to himself. What is Paul trying to get at? Didn't God make everything to begin with? Didn't he create everything? Doesn't he sustain everything every, every millisecond? We talked about that in previous weeks. Doesn't that give him rights over all creation? Why would Paul ever use the word reconciliation to describe God's relationship with things that he made for himself? And the answer to that question is actually found at the very beginning of the Bible. So if you do have your Bibles with you today, I'd ask that you turn to Genesis 1. We're going to spend a chunk of our time in the first three chapters, a good chunk of our time in the first three chapters of Genesis. And we'll start with verse 26 of Genesis 1. And remember, in everything we are doing here today, in everything we read today, the main question, the central question is, why do human beings need reconciliation with God? And how does God go ahead and achieve that reconciliation? Let's read starting with verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in this passage, we see, and, and most of you must be familiar with this passage um, by now, but let's, let's try to process it anew if we can. In this passage, we see some remarkable things. We see God make man and woman in his own image. He makes human beings in his own likeness. They are image bearers. And they have that status because they are designed by God to explicitly display God's existence and God's worth wherever they are, wherever they find themselves. That alone is worth a sermon. That is an incredible gift. Consider all of the molecules and atomic and subatomic particles that exist in the universe and the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of galaxies and our galaxy, one of the smaller ones, in our solar system, which is very small in proportion to the galaxy, all the molecules that exist in those things, consider them and then realize that the molecules that compose your body, the body of a human being, are infinitely distinct from them in that your molecules in your body were designed to display the image of the living God. That's huge. That's amazing. And it goes even further in verse 28. It says that after creating them, God blesses them. Now, don't pass this word by absentmindedly because this isn't an abstract sort of event of good favor or goodwill. This is a commissioning of a son or daughter, son and daughter, of 
the king. That's what this blessing is for. They are to reign under God as royalty on the earth. And God follows it by telling them, he says, listen, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. And what this tells us is that God's purpose, his design in image bearers is for their fruitfulness, for other image bearers to be born from their fruitfulness and for um, the world to be populated by image bearers. God is commissioning all of God's, all of, all of his all of mankind to display God's image into the furthest reaches of the earth. This is the single highest honor in creation. You will not find a higher honor in creation for any created being than that. It is enormous. And these first humans, they were called Adam and Eve. They're the parents of the human race. Now, after man was made, after Adam was made, he was given a command, a mandate. He was given a single prescription, something that he was never, ever, ever, ever to do. Let's read Genesis 2, starting with verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the command is very clear. There is a tree in the garden. The tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man is told, trust God. Trust in me, Adam. Do not eat of this tree. Why? God gives him the reason. The reason is, in the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. What God is telling Adam here is this. I am protecting you from death. Believe my words. Believe and trust in what I'm saying to you. Now, in this same chapter, we see that there's another tree in the garden. This tree is the tree of life. And later on, we'll read that it says, if you eat of this tree, you will live forever. You will enjoy the unrivaled glory of God's presence forever, an unbroken, infinite future as his own children. That's what it means uh, and what that means is explained in, in, in verse 25. It says, The man and the woman were both naked, and yet they were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed. This is the garden. This is what a world without a need for reconciliation looks like. Perfect peace. Zero shame. Zero guilt. Zero fear. There's no sweat. There's no pain. There's no agony. Every single physical or emotional need that you could ever dream of is met in this place. And that's the world that we see at the close of chapter 2 in the book of Genesis. That's what the garden represents. And it, I'd like to just spend a second just to consider this. God didn't owe man this. God blessed man in giving him this. God blessed a creature in giving 
them this. This wasn't deserved. This wasn't earned. This was an incredible display of God's loving kindness to invite a mere creature to embrace and participate in his glory. And man in this state reigns as an image bearer of the Almighty God. That is amazing. It was as though God had placed his name on the man's forehead. And everywhere that man would go, all creation would look and say, I see God in you. I see God in you. God made you in his likeness. And in the garden, they have access to the tree of life. They will never, ever, ever die. In the garden, they have access to something even greater than that, the undiminished glory of God. And they can bask in that for eternity. Honestly, we, we are so far removed of what this might be that it is hard for me to use words to explain it to you and for them to mean anything. We're so far removed from it. And the reason we're removed from it is because we have the book, the, we have the chapter Genesis 3 in the Bible. And Genesis 3 changes everything. Let's read it together. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If we could feel the weight of this passage, we would weep for days. It is perhaps God's grace that we are so far removed from it so that we can somehow understand and grapple with it without being absolutely crushed by the realities that are presented in this text. This is horrific. So what happened here? The serpent who is revealed through Scripture as Satan, as the devil. He's in the garden. And he would love to have a conversation with these image bearers. Eve, the woman made from Adam just a few verses earlier, is doing just that. The serpent tells her that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't going to kill you. It's not going to kill you, he says. He's telling them that God is lying to you. He's trying to keep something from you. And the serpent says that the tree, if you eat of it, will give you the very knowledge that God has himself. In other words, you will be just like him. 
And God doesn't want that. That's why he's keeping you away from it. And so Eve looks at the tree and she takes the fruit and her husband, Adam, who was the one originally commanded by God to protect and guard his wife from the tree earlier in Genesis, fails catastrophically. He didn't get in front of the bullet here. He simply lets his wife take the bullet and then he joins her on the chopping block. This relinquishing of his duty as husband to sacrifice his life for his wife is a failure for Adam. And he lets her take the fruit and then he joins her and the result of their sin together is that their eyes are opened. And the opening of their eyes, we need to understand this, it isn't simply just a understanding of guilt and an understanding of sin. It is those things. It's not simply that though. We see in verse 7 that their eyes were open. They feel guilt. They feel shame. They feel fear. For the first time in human existence, these words have meaning that they did not have before. And it is shattering in its effects. But like I said, that's not all that the tree represents. That's not all that the eating of the fruit of the tree means. Taking the fruit from this tree is a denial of God's divine right to determine what is good and what is evil. To take the fruit of this tree, like they do, is to say to God's face, I get to define ultimate reality. I get to tell you, God, what is good and what is evil. That's what happened here. And if I'm real with you about myself, I do this every day with God. It's what it means to sin, is to say to God, I get to define what this is. And all human hearts, all human hearts that have ever existed, everyone who bears the image of God has the law of God, according to Romans 2, woven into our being. We know what is good and evil automatically. We know intrinsically what is right and wrong. And when we violate those laws by trying to redefine them with our minds or with our desires or with our passions, we are effectively telling God, I don't trust you to protect me with your rules. We're saying, you don't know how to do your, God, your job, God. You don't know how to do it. Therefore, I will do it for you. And we're tempted to think that sin is like lying or boasting or murder. Those things are in the category of sin. But that's not the heart of sin. That's not the heart of sin. Those are simply expressions and outworkings of, a, of, of what is the core of sin, which is a disposition of the soul that says God and his rules can go to hell. That's the heart of sin. And this is exactly what happened in the garden. And it may sound like strong language. It may sound like maybe you're exaggerating this text a little bit, but let's look at verse 8 and see if I am. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I have to ask you to please do not let a picture you may have of this scene in your mind from a flannel graph or a coloring book deceive you as to what this was really like. This is absolutely heart-wrenching. 
God's presence, God's presence, the greatest thing in the universe, God's presence basking in the beauty and wonder of his perfect resplendent glory is now for these people gone. There is no joy in it anymore. There's only fear because of what they've done. And this isn't an unwarranted fear in their minds. This isn't an unwarranted fear because they know what they've done. This wasn't about eating a a piece of fruit. There wasn't anything magical about that tree. That's not the point of this event. The point is that they openly defied God. Indeed, they wanted to be God for themselves. And that's what the serpent basically told them. If you eat this, you'll be like God. And through this action, through this act of eating the fruit, they've effectively spit into the face of the creator of the universe and said, we don't want your rule. We don't want your law. We don't want your commands. We don't believe you can protect us. And now they are afraid of God's presence because everything that was good that they had before has been shattered into a million pieces. They know, the reason they hide here is because they know they deserve immediate justice. They deserve God's wrath. And if God exerts only justice right now, this story ends in chapter 3 of Genesis. There's no more rest of the Bible. There's no more rest of God's story as it involves man. If God exerts only justice right now, this is the final chapter of the Bible. But it's not. Praise God. Stunningly, it continues. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? But the Lord God called to the man. Notice how this is written. God's not ignorant to what's happened here. He, he didn't miss it. He knows what's happened here. He's not wondering what took place. He knows even how this is going to shake out. However, it says, but the Lord God, pivoting off their sin, pivoting off their hiding, God still calls out for man. And what that is, is mercy. That is grace. And that is a deep, deep love, despite man's actions. Let's continue to read here. It says, But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God goes to the man first. And he asked the man first, what happened? And the reason he does this is because God gave the command to the man. It was his responsibility to protect his wife from the tree, and he didn't do it. He still doesn't do it in this moment. Instead, he blames God for giving him the woman in the first place. Adam could have repented right there and taken the full weight of the responsibility for everything that happened, and he should have. 
Eve was his responsibility, and yet he throws her under the bus. And so God turns to Eve because Adam wasn't alone in this failure. She shouldn't have been talking to the serpent. She shouldn't have believed in the lie that the serpent gave her, but she did, and in doing that, she defied God with Adam. And yet here, in response, she states the source of the deception. So she's shifting blame to the serpent. Now notice this. When Eve shifts blame to the serpent, God doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He's asked Adam, what happened? Then he asked Eve, what did you do? But he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. And the reason why he doesn't ask the serpent any questions is because he knows the serpent. He's not interested in talking to the serpent. He knows the serpent is wicked. And so what he does is he curses the serpent. His curse against the serpent will ultimately get us back into the book of Colossians here in a second. God is going to show us in this curse, in a few words in this curse, the purpose of all things that have ever existed. Let's read. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God says this. He says, I will put enmity between your offspring, the offspring of the woman, and, or the offspring of Satan, the serpent, and the woman's offspring. I will put enmity between you, between the seed of the serpent, which is literally what that word means, and her seed. Now, whatever this means for Eve in that moment, whatever she could be thinking right now as she hears the curse of God come from his mouth and land on the head of the serpent, whatever that is, she no doubt recognizes that any kind of victory, any kind of good that could come from this will only come from a violent conflict, a violent war. God is effectively saying that between these two offsprings, there will be an ongoing enmity, an ongoing struggle in war. This war will be between those, all those who are born of the woman and all of those who are born of the serpent. And peace for this war, peace from this war, will only be secured through one event. And he describes it here. God says, He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The imagery is vivid. The serpent will go after the offspring's heel, and the offspring will go after the serpent's head, and both blows will certainly be struck, but only one of them will walk away. There cannot be, God is impressing upon Eve in this moment and on Adam, there cannot be a simple solution to this event. It will not be done uneasily. So after cursing the serpent, God judges both the woman and the man. They are punished for their act of rebellion, their treason against God's loving rule. And shockingly, the punishment doesn't remove their status as image bearers. God doesn't revoke that status. Somehow, by God's grace, 
they don't lose their image-bearing, the aspect of their nature that is image-bearing. But that doesn't mean that they emerge from this event unscathed. The worst aspect of this judgment, I believe, is expressed at the very end of Genesis 3. Listen to this. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is one of the most sad passages written in human existence. Man had in his grasp eternal life. That's what the tree represents. Eat of it, the text says, and you will live forever. He had it in his grasp, but now he's completely lost it. And we might be tempted to ask at this moment, wasn't the punishment for eating the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, wasn't that immediate death? Surely in that day you would die. I mean, was the serpent right after all when he said, no, you're not going to die that day? The answer is actually no. The serpent wasn't right at all. Romans 5 says that this point in Scripture is the point at which death, like water in a dam, deluged the entire cosmos. And we have been drowning in it ever since. Physical death and spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says, we are, all of us, every human being, dead in our transgressions and sins. That is the diagnosis that the Apostle Paul gives us. We are not living in all the ways that we should be. And to show this is the reality. They now, um, they now live in complete fear and they are driven out of the garden, completely severing them from not only the tree of life, but the presence of God. They will no longer be able to enjoy God the same way that is completely gone. And to communicate to us clearly that it's gone, God has placed a cherubim, some powerful supernatural being, in front of the garden, and he will kill anyone who comes near it. There's no way to get back in the garden for Adam and Eve. There's no way at all. They will never touch the tree of life again. Why? Because it is impossible for sinful humans to return into the presence of God. It is impossible. But let's not forget the promise that God made the serpent. He said there will be war. Your offspring versus her offspring. And though you may grievously wound the offspring, he will ultimately crush your head. And so the question, of course, is who is this offspring that God promised? Who's the offspring that God promised would come from the woman? And throughout Scripture, we get more promises from God. And the, the offspring becomes clearer and clearer as time goes on. Later in Genesis, God finds, out of all the people in the world, a moon worshiper living in the land of Ur. Doesn't believe in Yahweh, but God worships moons and seasons 
And this man, God approaches and engages him. His name's Abram. And he makes a covenant with him that all the families of the world, every family in the world, will be through you blessed. And that this covenant, this covenant will make a way for the offspring to come, the seed of the woman. In, later on in scripture, we see that he is referred to as the Messiah. He's referred to as the Christ of God, a man who would somehow undo the catastrophe that we just witnessed in the garden. He'd finally bring an end to the war by defeating the serpent. And there would at last, according to the prophecies, be peace in the world. There wouldn't be war anymore. We have to understand and we have to think critically in such a way that we realize that what's being suggested in these prophecies is impossible. It is impossible. How can you possibly undo death being released on the world? How can you undo the exile of man from the garden, from the presence of the living God? How can you do that? Well, thousands of years after this exile, a man shows up, and he says in his teaching, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the offspring of the woman, and this man is Jesus of Nazareth. And he explains to all of us, he explains to the people that are around him, his context, I'll tell you who the offspring are. You want to know who the offspring are? I will tell you who they are. Listen to Jesus in John 8. He's engaging the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day. They don't care for him very much, as you'll see from the text. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, when the serpent lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, Pharisees, is that you are not of God. And then the Jews answer him and say, they're not really excited with him right now because of what he just said. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answers and says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Jesus is crystal clear. He can't be more clear about it. There are two streams in human history, two offsprings in human history. There are those who are of God, the woman's offspring. And there are those who are of the serpent. This division isn't based on culture. This division isn't based on ethnicity. This division isn't based on moral, external moralism or religious duty, behavior. This basis, this is based, this division on one thing. 
When you hear Jesus speak, do you believe what he's saying? Do you believe what's coming out of his mouth? Do you believe that he's telling the truth? Do you trust him? Do you cherish his words? That is what indicates whether you are of God or whether you are like the Pharisees of the devil. And amazingly, Jesus says that everyone who is of God will never see death. That's insane. Everyone sees death. But Jesus says, if you keep my words, if you cherish my words, if you embrace and believe what I say, you will never die. But there's a huge problem with this statement, Jesus, because um, if you do believe, you're still guilty of sin. If you're still of God and you believe, you're still guilty of sin. We were shut out of the garden. How is it possible for sinners to lay hold of the tree of life once more and eat its fruit? How is that even possible? Another way of asking this question is how can God reconcile all of those sinners back to himself if they're actually guilty of sinning? How could God return them to his presence if they actually deserve his wrath and his judgment? There's only one way, and we see it in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. Paul is explaining in this passage his ministry, and he's talking about what we're engaging in Colossians, the message of reconciliation, that God is reconciling all things through Christ Jesus. Listen to Paul's language here, especially the last, last part of this passage. Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is radical love. That is incredible love, and it is almost unbelievable. In order to go back into the garden, we need to be sinless. In order to go back into the presence of God, we need to be free from our transgressions. We need our own sin to be removed far from us. And we also somehow need a righteousness that we don't possess. The greatest problem in the world for us and for every one of the seven billion or so human beings that exist on this rock is that we cannot do this. This is not possible for us to do. The only way it can happen is if someone can do it for us. Unless there could be some kind of massive exchange, the only way that we could ever enter into God's presence again and inherit eternal life is for someone to take all of our sin away and pay for it fully, and that's someone to give us their perfect, unblemished righteousness. And there is a someone like that. That someone is the seed, the offspring of the woman, 
the man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Though he knew no sin, knew no sin, not even a drop of sin, God made him to be our sin. All of it. Your sin and my sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of the living God. This is one of the most amazing sentences ever written. So how does this connect with the Christ hymn in Colossians? How does, how does it connect to God's reconciliation of all things in the universe and for Jesus Christ to be the purpose of all things? Let's read uh, 1, uh, 19 through 20 in Colossians again. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So you see, there was a third tree, and this one wasn't in the garden. This tree is also the tree of life, and anyone who eats of it will live forever. This tree is nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we take communion, which we'll be doing in a few seconds here, by partaking in the elements which represent his body and blood, what we are doing is we are declaring publicly that we believe and trust in Christ Jesus and that we are of God. You see, all things, every single thing that exists centers in on this moment in human history. They exist to show the love of God. All things, creation exists, all of it, because the cross of Christ needed to be shown. Christ needed to be glorified and treasured by all of creation, and he is in this act of mercy, this great act of love. Therefore, Jesus Christ, the offspring, is the purpose of all things. He is the final answer to the question, why? Why the garden? Why sin? Why the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why the serpent? Why the fall? Why all of the calamities and atrocities that have come in the wake of the fall? Why all of it? The reason why all of that and death exist is to display the radical love of God in the death of his own son for sinners like you and me. Christ Jesus is the purpose of all things. And if you believe, you are invited to partake in communion when we worship in a moment. I want to close with a passage from the book of Revelation. This passage presents the end of human history, the culmination of this story, our story, the story that we live in, the very end of ages. And this passage tells us how the story ends for those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. It shows us a very brief glimpse of our return to the garden, a real event that is headed our way right now. Let me read it to you, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer 
will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need for light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the end of history that we are headed to. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, you are of God. You are woven into Christ Jesus. And this is your future. Let's pray. Father, your word is is pure and perfect and undefiled and, and amazing, Father. And in your word, we get a story of how you redeemed mankind for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. And it is an amazing story, Father, from front to back. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, as we worship here even in the next few minutes, Father, that you would so kindle in our hearts an affection for Christ Jesus and for the great reality who who he is, the apex of all things. But not only that, Father, that everything that exists, every molecule, every atomic particle that exists in the universe, all of reality exists for one main purpose, and that is that Christ Jesus might be glorified and acknowledged for his intrinsic worth because he is objectively that beautiful. Father, I pray that you would help us feel that today, that it wouldn't simply be an intellectual ascent with words on a page, but it would be a reality that we cherish and delight in every day of our lives, Father God. Only you can do this. So I pray with great confidence and I plead for your mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.